Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. Uh, we are continuing a series that we've just begun recently that we've entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And if you're just joining us, um, share a little bit of information with you. These Bible studies are recorded and uploaded to our website. There are also outline notes provided for the studies. Those are also available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. So any of these studies, you can access both the notes and the recordings. You know, before we begin tonight, I just want to uh, express my thanks to all of you that are on with us, because, you know, studying God's Word together is such an important part of true discipleship. And we heard in Pastor Quasey's message on Sunday something that has always struck me as I read through the Gospels. There were large crowds following Jesus, but he spoke to the crowds and called out those who would be his disciples. There's a big difference between just being in the crowd and taking that next step to be a true disciple of Christ. And one of the things Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must continue in my word. And I think that means both studying the word, learning the word, and then most importantly, practicing the word. So want to encourage you to keep digging deeper into God's Word. That's what a real disciple does. And hopefully, uh, the more you do that, the more God is going to put a love in your heart for the Word of God. And I can honestly say with the psalmist David, Oh, how I love your law. I just love the Word of God. I love to study it. I love to memorize it. I love to teach it. And hopefully, God is helping me to love to do it also, which is really the most important of all. And this Bible series that we are doing, several of you have already come to me and commented on this. This is more than a Bible study. My prayer from the beginning, has, as we have started this series, is that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes to see something far beyond just the words and the history and the story that we're looking at. You know, in Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, he began to share from the Law of Moses, from the Prophets, and from the Psalms, things concerning himself. And then it says that their eyes were opened to understand the Scriptures. There has to be an opening of the eyes to really begin to see what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And this Bible study, Out of Bondage into Abundance, we of course are looking at the Old Testament story of Israel being in bondage in Egypt, coming out of that slavery, and entering into the Promised Land. It's a nice story, lots of songs, lots of poems have been written about it, but it's more than a story. It's a picture 
a graphic illustration for you and for me as Christians of our Christian journey from sin into the fullness of God's salvation. And as we move along step by step through this study, I am praying that the Holy Spirit really opens our eyes and gives us revelation of the journey that we are on. And I trust that all of us here tonight understand this thing we call salvation, it's a process. It's a journey. It's not just something that, oh, in January 12 of 1953, I got saved. Well, wonderful. But the Bible also says we are being saved, and we're still not fully saved. So there's a past, there's a present, there's even a future to our salvation. It's a journey, a lifelong journey. And I am just amazed each time I come back and study this whole picture in the Old Testament of Israel coming out of Egypt and going into the Promised Land, how rich it is and the wonderful things God begins to open your eyes to see about your own life and your own journey. And we have just completed the first part of seven parts that we're going to be looking at in this Bible series. And the first part was basically an introduction, an overview to what we want to try to look at. And tonight we're going to be going into a lot more detail. But once again, God told the children of Israel, I'm bringing you out to take you in. And that's where we get the title for this series, Out of Bondage into abundance. The children of Israel had been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. That's a long time to be a slave. And after 400 years, you develop a certain mindset. You get used to being a slave. And it's hard for you to imagine any other kind of a life but that of being in bondage and being a slave. And so even while the Israelites were still in Egypt, God began to speak to them about where he wanted to take them, to a whole different place, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of richness, a land of abundance. And we finished last time talking about how he was taking them into a place of rest, a place where everything was already provided for them. They didn't have to sweat and toil the way they did in Egypt. He was taking them into a land that drinks rain from heaven, cities and houses already built, already furnished, gardens, vineyards, olive groves already planted, already producing fruit. All they had to do was trust God, obey God, and he was going to take them in to this marvelous land of Canaan. We normally refer to it as the promised land. And we saw last time that for you and for me as Christians, we also have a promised land. In Hebrews 3 and 4, 
it's very clear, and this is where we ended last time, there remains a rest for you and for me. The children of Israel, by and large, could not enter that rest for two reasons. It wasn't because of giants, it wasn't because of enemies, it wasn't because of the high walls and fortifications that were inside Canaan. They prevented themselves from entering in. And Hebrews 3 and 4 summarize it very simply in two words, disobedience and unbelief. So those are two areas we need to be paying close attention to, and the positive side of that is, if we want to enter into the promised land, if we want to enter into God's rest, it's going to require two things, faith and obedience. Now, a couple of more comments about this inheritance, this promised land, that God wants to take us into. It, of course, consists of God's exceeding great and precious promises to you and to me. Many, many promises He has made to us. We saw last time they are all yes, and our response to each and every one of them is Amen. So be it. Let your promises be fulfilled in my life. We are told also in Hebrews that it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God. I want to talk a little bit more about this inheritance that God has promised us. It is both for this life, but more importantly, it is for the life to come. And I want to read couple of passages, and if you're following in our notes, I'm on picks. And in these passages that I'm going to read, we can see that the emphasis is on a heavenly inheritance. Has nothing to do with this life, with this world. It's in heaven. It's in the hereafter. And Paul says in another place, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So in other words, sure, when we come to Christ, there are many blessings that we begin to enjoy right here and now. There is an abundant life that we can enjoy now on this earth. A life of peace, a life filled with the Holy Spirit, a life where God is continually with us, speaking to us, guiding us, answering our prayers, and even helping us physically, healing us from our sicknesses, delivering us from bondages and difficulties, and providing the things that we need for life. But if that's all we are hoping for in Christ, Paul says we've missed it. And sadly, many Christians today, they think the Christian life is only about this life. Prospering, getting a bigger and a better house, a nicer car, more money in the bank. Praise God. Jesus blessed me. He gave me all that stuff. But there's more to the abundant life than just the physical and the material. 
as we will see in these following verses. Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 18. Paul writing to believers. They're, they're already saved, baptized, spirit-filled Christians that he's writing to. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now you'll notice the word inheritance is found there twice. And there's a very interesting expression that Paul is using in verses 13 and 14. He basically is saying the Holy Spirit is like a down payment. It's like a deposit or earnest money that is put down securing something that will later be paid for in full and possession will be taken of that particular object. When you go to buy a new car or buy a house, you most likely put down a deposit. And then that is guaranteeing that if it's a 10 or 20 percent deposit, you're guaranteeing that you're going to come up with the other 90 or 80 percent to fully possess that car or that house. Well, notice what he's saying here. You have received a seal on your life. It's the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing, I like that word, guaranteeing our inheritance until, so this hasn't happened yet, <clears throat> until the redemption of those who are God's possession. I don't have time to go into the depths of this tonight, but that until the redemption is referring to the final redemption of our bodies at the coming of the Lord or at our resurrection. So until then, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives guaranteeing that we're going to obtain that full inheritance at the end of our journey. Verse 18 again uses the word inheritance but in a whole different context. <clears throat> Paul is praying for the Ephesians that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. I'm also praying for that. God open the eyes of our heart. There are things we need to see we can't see them with our physical eyes, and there has to be an opening, an enlightening of our inner man to begin to see, perceive, and understand these things. What is it? 
to know the hope to which he has called you. Hope, again, is something future. Bible makes it very clear, if you already have it, you can't hope for it. So hope is something we don't yet fully have. To know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So there is an inheritance yet to come. It's glorious, it is precious, it's promised, and it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. I really like this next verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth. Now just pause there for a minute. Hopefully everyone listening to my voice tonight has been born again. If not, I want to encourage you, God has a new birth for us. It's a gift. We don't get born again because we're clever or smart or holy or spiritual. It's a gift of God's mercy. And that's why we praise God so much for being saved, being born again. We didn't have anything to do with it. God birthed us into this new life. He birthed us into this inheritance. And that's why Peter is praising God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. There's that word hope again. We're born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you. Now, you know, a few lucky fortunate individuals on planet Earth happen to have bo been born into very wealthy families. Most of us weren't, but <laughs> a few people happen to be born into families that just have fabulous wealth. Well, there's a great inheritance awaiting them just and only because they were born into that family. And the same thing is true for you and for me. There is tremendous wealth stored up in heaven for all those that belong to God's family. If you're a member of his family, you're on the will. You've already got a big, fat inheritance coming your way. Why? All because of birth. These are called birthrights. And we had nothing to do with being born into God's family. James 1.18 says, Of his own will, he birthed us. So, we have nothing to boast about. If we're saved, praise God for his great mercy that has given us a new birth. But, as we are studying, we come out of bondage 
to move into abundance. We're born again out of our old life of sin to become children of God and we're born into an inheritance. But here's the point I want to emphasize that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you. Note those words. This inheritance is not on earth. It's not a new Mercedes. It's not a 900,000 square foot house. This is all being kept by God in heaven for us. It'll only be released when we get to heaven. So, very clearly, there's an earthly aspect to our inheritance, excuse me, but more importantly, there is a heavenly inheritance stored up, reserved, being kept for us in heaven until we arrive there to possess it. One more scripture in the New Testament about this heavenly eternal inheritance. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Let me read that again slowly. May receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, I don't know about you, God has been very good to me even in this earthly life. I have a roof over my head, I eat, I sleep, I have a pretty decent life, I can't complain. But I am definitely, more and more with the passing of time, I am looking forward to heaven. This earth is not our home. This is not our final resting place. And, you know, the famous cliche, you can't take it with you, is very true. And, you know, I feel sorry for Christians who have lost this vision and their whole life is centered around gaining this world. We heard Sunday, if we gain the whole world, what do we forfeit? Our soul. What a sad thing. You take the whole world, but give me my heavenly inheritance. God wants us to keep our eyes on the ball, and the ball is heaven. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. So as we're moving through this Bible study, remember we're in a process, we're in a journey. We're going from Egypt to the Promised Land. We're coming out of bondage and moving into abundance. Now, continuing, and this is just going to scratch the surface tonight, we're going to spend a few sessions in part two of our series. The first step for Israel 
coming out of bondage was the celebration of the Passover. Such an important topic to study and to understand. And we we don't want to race through this. I want to take time to study this because it is absolutely critical. And uh, someone came to me after our Sunday service and said, you know, Pastor, like you're teaching on Wednesdays, we have to come out of bondage first before we can go into abundance. And I said, absolutely. You, you can't have the abundance and still be in Egypt. You have to come out of bondage. And thank God he's delivering people from bondage in these days. And he has great power to set us free from our bondage. But this is a step-by-step process. First, out of bondage. Then, into abundance. So we need to study this first part very carefully. And we're going to be looking in the next three parts, three stages in Israel's deliverance or coming out of bondage. The first one is the Passover. The second one is crossing through the Red Sea. And then the third one is when they came to Mount Sinai. So we're going to look very carefully at each one of those three steps in Israel's complete and total deliverance from Egypt. Now, let's dig into the first step, the Passover. As we've already been mentioning, Israel was in bondage. They were slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. God had predicted this way back in Genesis 15. He told the prophet Abraham, you may be amazed at those words, but Abraham was a prophet, the Bible says. God told Abraham that your descendants are going to become very numerous, but they're also going to be slaves in a foreign land. And after 400 years, God finally brought them out of that cruel bondage. And we looked at a number of words that referred to their experience in Egypt. Words like oppression, misery, forced labor, oppression and bondage. It was a terrible, terrible time in Israel's history. And as I mentioned earlier tonight, It was a long time. 400 years is a long time. And your children's children's children have all known nothing but slavery. And you develop a certain mindset, and you also can kind of become comfortable, if, if I can use that word, in your bondage. That's all you've known and you don't know anything else, so you'd rather just stay in the bondage. And God had to do a number of amazing supernatural things to ultimately get them out of that bondage. Just as Israel spent 400 years in cruel slavery, oppression, and bondage in Egypt, 
we find coming over into the New Testament, the Bible is very clear that you and I were once slaves. And that picture is used often in the New Testament. The sinner finds himself enslaved, not by Pharaoh, but by a far more powerful slave master called sin. And we're going to find expressions in the New Testament such as we were sold as slaves into sin. Sin was our slave master and we were prisoners to the law of sin. We'll begin in John chapter 8 with the words of Jesus himself. John chapter 8 verses 32 to 36. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They, that's the Jews that he was speaking to, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. That's pretty hilarious. We'll comment on that in a minute. Let me finish. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, this group of Pharisees and religious Jews when Jesus tells them, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, they respond immediately saying, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves of anyone. Wow, that is incredible. Anyone and everyone knows that Abraham's descendants were indeed slaves of someone. And it's fascinating to me that it was first prophesied through Abraham that they were going to become slaves. And one of the fascinating dynamics that opens up to us in this passage is if you are still in sin, you don't even realize you're a slave. I'll let that sink in. If you are still in sin, you don't even realize that you are a slave. Those of us who have been delivered through Jesus Christ, we know very well what our life once was. We know that it was indeed a life of misery, bondage, addiction, oppression, prison, and I could think of a hundred other words to describe my old life as a sinner even though we boasted about the great freedom we had, man, we're going to go party tonight, we're going to smoke weed, we're going to drink, we're going to have a good time, we finally came face to face with the truth, and we now realize that wasn't freedom, 
That was slavery. We were like little puppets on a string, and someone was pulling the strings. There was a master over our life, and we'll find in the next two passages that master has a name. It's called sin. Jesus says very clearly here, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Well, how many people fit into that category? Romans 3.23 removes any doubt or question. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So the bottom line is, humanity is in slavery. Humanity is in bondage. And they need to come out of bondage if they're ever going to enter into God's abundance. And what we're going to be learning in this part two, there's only one way out. Only one way out. It's through the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, Romans 6, verses 12 to 17. Paul has a lot to say in Romans about the slavery of sin. Listen to some of the words he uses here. Romans 6, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Notice that word, master. Sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are, note these words, slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, pause, though you used to be slaves to sin. He's telling every one of the Christians in Rome, you used to be slaves. I used to be a slave. We all used to be slaves. Sin was our master. Sin was reigning over us, and we were obeying our master. Verse 17 again. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching 
to which you were entrusted. Note the importance of obedience here. Whom are we obeying? Are we obeying sin as our slave master? Or are we now slaves of God? Slaves of righteousness? Slaves of obedience to the one who loves us with an everlasting love? If you go back and reread this portion, I think you'll begin to see how Paul is drawing this parallel between the Israelites in bondage to Pharaoh and you and me in bondage to sin. Let's continue into the next chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 7. Paul has a lot more to say here about the slavery or the bondage of sin. Romans 7, beginning at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. And by the way, just a side note, remember this whole thing began with Joseph being sold by his brothers as a slave. That's how he ended up in Egypt. He was sold as a slave, and eventually his whole family joined him in Egypt. They prospered, they multiplied, and then eventually the whole nation was sold again as a slave to Pharaoh. Sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from the body of this death? Paul answers his own question in verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave 
to the law of sin. So, very clearly, the New Testament identifies what our slavery is. It's not Pharaoh, it's not Egypt. Those are just pictures of a far more powerful taskmaster called sin. And just as the Israelites needed to be supernaturally brought out from that bondage, so the sinner needs a supernatural deliverance. And time and time again we find the expression in the Old Testament, God brought them out with his mighty outstretched arm. It took great power from God to deliver these people from 400 years of slavery and bondage. They would still be there today if it weren't for God's mighty arm and power coming down to deliver them. Now, let's get to the good part of the story. They were delivered. And I want to examine at least four reasons why God purposed to deliver the Israelites out of their bondage. And by extension, we're going to find the same reasons he has for wanting to set you and me free from the slavery of sin. Four reasons why God came down and delivered the Israelites from their bondage. Reason number one is very important. These were God's chosen covenant people. God wanted to separate them unto himself to be his treasured possession. And we don't have time to look at all the verses, but it traces again back to Abraham. Many promises God gave to Abraham and his descendants. Simply and only because they were descended from Abraham, they were chosen by God. Out of all the nations, God chose this one nation, Israel, to be his people. And because of that, he had already determined, he had a plan for them, to take them out of bondage into abundance. Let's look at one Old Testament passage. There are many like this, but I think this is sufficient. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 9. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. By the way, verse 7, bigger isn't always better. I'll leave it at that. 
verse 8 it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh king of Egypt know therefore that the Lord your God is God he is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands after all is said and done God says there's really only one reason why I'm delivering you it's because I have a covenant to keep that's it I have a covenant to keep I made a covenant with Abraham and I'm gonna keep my word I am faithful to keep my covenant of love he is the faithful God I like that he is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations so why did God take them out of bondage you're my chosen people I want you to be my treasured possession it's not because you're great it's not because there's a lot of you note verse 7 again the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples you were the fewest of all peoples you know there are some they always want to be with the big crowd that's not necessarily where God is Jesus told his disciples don't fear little flock sometimes God likes little things he likes small groups I'm starting to enjoy that more and more God likes small groups where there's real quality in their devotion in their commitment to God and like I referred to earlier you you read the Gospels you see large crowds and out of those crowds God said Jesus said now if you want to be my disciple it's gonna take more you need to lay down your life you need to take up your cross you need to continue in my word he he laid out certain commitments that were going to be required if they wanted to take that next step out from the crowd and be a true disciple of Jesus so reason number one they were brought out of bondage because they were God's chosen covenant people and it goes back to Abraham what about you and me why in the world did God save me why did God save you is there any explanation given to us in the New Testament why some are saved and some aren't and I've shared this frequently and often in my family there are many many people that were far better people than I was they were more upright more honest more moral people 
My own brother, he was a good kid. He went right through high school, right through college, got a good job. He was just the perfect son. He never got into any serious trouble of any kind. Me, on the other hand, by the age of 16, I was into alcohol, I was into drugs, I wrecked my parents' car one night, and my father got a phone call from the police at 4 o'clock in the morning to come down to the station and pick up his wrecked car and his son. Which one of the boys does God choose to save? Me. I don't understand why. And I can only find one explanation. And it's the same reason we just gave for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Notice the similarity, even in the way these verses sound, but I'm reading now from the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you, you Christians, you believers in Christ, but you are a chosen people chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Remember, God told them in Deuteronomy, I want them to be my possession, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of bondage into abundance, out of darkness into his wonderful light. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're alive and you can hear my voice, either live tonight or maybe through a recording in the future, and you know that you know that you know that you've been born again, that God has saved you and delivered you out of sin, my friend, there's only one reason why it happened. It's God's mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's why we saw earlier in 1 Peter 1, Peter couldn't stop praising God for the fact that he was a born-again Christian. Praise God who gave us new birth. Praise God who brought us out of darkness in the marvelous light. That's what he says. That's why he did it. So that you can now declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So the first two reasons why God brought them out, first one, because they were God's chosen people. We also are God's chosen people. Second reason we'll look at, and this is probably where we will have to conclude for tonight, God heard their cry, and he had compassion on them. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we read, During that long period, 
the king of Egypt died. It's giving the background as to how the Israelites ended up as slaves in Egypt. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The one who was once friendly with Joseph and very kind to the Israelites, he died. And it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. I love this next part. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. I want to encourage anyone that's on this phone line or even anyone that you're ministering to, I don't care how deep they're in bondage. They might be a heroin or a crack addict. They might be a pornography addict. I don't care what kind of bondage they're in. When a a soul cries out, sincerely cries out for help, God is going to hear them. Israel groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help went up to God. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Notice that. A couple of things are happening here. Slavery is getting real bad. Israelites start groaning. They're praying. They're now crying out to God for help. God is inclining his ear. God is hearing their cries. He's hearing their groanings. He's remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I like verse 24, he was concerned about them. God is concerned about anyone and everyone, regardless of the bondage they're in, when they sincerely begin to turn their face toward heaven and cry out to God for help. In my 40 years of ministry, I have seen some amazing cases of deliverance. People who were so hopelessly bound by drugs and other kinds of addictions. There's no way they were ever going to get set free. And in an instant, God delivered them and brought them out of that bondage. In Exodus 3, the very next chapter, God comes down and he appears to Moses at the burning bush. And in Exodus 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have seen. Now, that's different. Chapter 2 said he heard. Now it's saying he's seeing also. So God has good hearing. He also has real good eyesight. Especially when people are in trouble. I have seen the misery of of my people. Notice those words. 
As far as God's concerned, these are now His people. They're still in bondage. They're still groaning. They're still crying. But in God's book, He's already calling them My people. I have seen them. I have seen their misery. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. This second reason is a very powerful one. First one we mentioned, it's because they were his people. God's chosen people, he's now coming to deliver them. But the second one brings it down to the human level. God is a God of compassion. And God hears our cries. He's concerned about our suffering. He's concerned about our groanings and our bondages and the things that we need to be rescued from. And he says, that's it. I'm coming down now. This thing has reached a breaking point. I'm going to start to move. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Bringing this over into our experience. Very interestingly, in Romans 10, where Paul talks about the simple, basic steps towards salvation, he states this in verse 13. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Sooner or later, I don't know what your experience was, I remember mine very well, sooner or later, we have to hit a wall where we are sick and tired of our old life of sin, selfishness, and bondage. And I don't think we can really be truly saved until we hit that wall. You have to be sick and tired of your old life. If you're just, you know, maybe I'll try this Jesus thing. And, you know, the pastor's pressuring me to come forward and say some kind of sinner's prayer. So I'm just going to do it to get him off my back. I'll be honest with you, I've never seen real salvation in those cases. When I see somebody in a puddle of tears on the floor saying, I am sick and tired of being an alcoholic. I am sick and tired of these drugs. God, please set me free. Those people, they do business with God. Why? Because that, that's what God says. It's one of the prerequisites, if you will, to true salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, I don't think that's just repeating some sinner's prayer. I think it means from your heart, you're really groaning and crying out to God, Lord, I want to be saved. Save me from this mess I'm in. And let me tell you something. Sin can get us into some real complicated messes. It can land us in prison. It can get us into serious trouble. It can ruin our relationships and on and on and on. We can find ourselves in a real deep, dark hole. And it seems to us 
like there's no way out. But let me tell you something. There's always a way out. When we call on the Lord, when we begin to cry out to God, at some point, God says the same words that he said at the burning bush. I've seen them. I've heard them. I'm concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them. If you read through the Gospels, it's interesting to note how many times when different people came to Jesus in their demon possession, in their bondages, in their sicknesses, in all of their problems, the Bible says he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. And that's a very important ingredient to deliverance. When we come to that place where we truly, sincerely, honestly realize we're slaves and we need God's help. Notice in Exodus it said, they groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery, went up to God. When a person comes to a place in their deep, dark prison of sin where they recognize the help they need is not going to come from human sources. God has to help me. That's when all of heaven starts to come down and starts to move. God hears our groaning. God hears our cry. And God cannot lie. He says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to conclude there for tonight. Next time we will continue with the next two reasons why God delivered the Israelites and why he wants to deliver you and me. Until then, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you tonight for what you did for the children of Israel. Lord, I thank you that even after 400 long years of bondage, when they finally started to cry out to you, they finally began to turn their faces toward heaven, and call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to help them. You heard them, you saw them, you remembered your covenant and your promise, and you came down to rescue them. And Lord, how surely, no matter how deep, how dark our bondage, our prison of sin may be, Lord, when we turn to you and we cry out to you sincerely from our hearts, we have your promise that you hear us, you see us, you're moved with compassion, and you will come down and deliver us. And God, Israel was your chosen people. And we've just read in First Peter that we are now your chosen people generation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom that you have set apart for yourself, a kingdom of priests 
to be your treasured possession. God, I thank you and I praise you for taking us out, completely out, of every bondage, every tie to Egypt, that we may move in to this promised land, this abundant, overflowing life that you have prepared for us, and ultimately to enter into our heavenly, eternal inheritance, which you have stored up for us. Lord, I praise you, I thank you, in Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen.